Welcome back to eConversations with Nave, the official podcast for the National Association for Business Economics and your one-stop shop for catching up on the latest in business economics on the go. Today's podcast is the replay from the February 2nd webinar, A Conversation on Russia, How the War Fractured the Global Order. The session covers the current state of the conflict, how it will unfold, and its long-term impact on the global geopolitical, economic, and investment landscape. The session is moderated by Alejandra Grindahl, Chief Economist at Ned Davis Research and NAB International Roundtable Co-Chair. Passing it over to you, Alejandra. Great. Thank you so much, Caitlin. And thank you, everyone, again, for joining us today. As Caitlin mentioned, this is a webinar presented by the International Roundtable. I'm Alejandra Grindahl, Chief Economist at Ned Davis Research, and I'll be moderating this call. But most importantly, I am so honored and pleased to introduce our panelists for today's webinar. First, we have Matt Gherkin, who is the Chief Strategist of Geopolitical Strategy at BCA Research, where he analyzes geopolitics and the impact on markets, focusing on both global and US policy. Prior to his role at BCA, Matt worked for Stratford, covering geopolitics with a special focus on Asia Pacific. Also on the call, we have Patrick Ferran Hernandez, who is a market strategist for Confluence Investment Management, where he analyzes financial market trends, global economics, and geopolitical developments to map their implications on investment strategy. Patrick is also a former CIA intelligence analyst officer who is focused on Russia. Today's discussion will highlight how the war in Russia has fractured the global order. You all may recall, almost a year ago, Russia's invasion of Ukraine sent ripples through the global economy, triggering, among many other things, an energy crisis in Europe and creating a new block of alliances globally. In today's webinar, our experts will discuss the current state of the conflict, how they think it will unfold, and spend quite a bit of time discussing its long-term impact on the global geopolitical, economic, and investment landscape. I will begin the discussion with asking our panelists some questions. We'll have a conversation. And then we'll open it up the call to you, our listeners, for your questions. So as Caitlin mentioned, please feel free to submit questions at any time. So without further delay, let's get started. Patrick, I wanted to start off with you. Can you just sort of set the stage, just provide an update on the status of the war, what you think the end game will be? Given your background in the CIA, pretty pretty cool, pretty unique. We're interested to hear your perspective on this. Well, thanks, Alejandra, and uh, thanks to Nate for uh, for having me on the call. Um, you know, when it comes to uh, tactical battlefield uh, conditions right now, it's actually a, a fairly uh, simple story in uh, in the war. Uh, the front lines running from northeastern Ukraine all the way down to the south have been pretty static over the last uh, two or three months. Um, certainly a lot of fighting, but uh, uh, in, in many ways it looks kind of like uh, World War I with uh, big portions of the front line heavily entrenched and uh, not a lot of movement. Um, now, it does look like uh, the Russians are... Uh, massing uh, troops and resources for um, a, uh, a likely new offensive uh, sometime in the 
coming month or two, uh, not only are they massing troops and resources, but they're also um, moving better quality troops uh, into the area in uh, around Donetsk and uh, Luhansk, and so uh, pretty clearly preparing for some major action. But you know, I, I referenced World War One, and I I think you know that's something that we as economists probably should pay a lot of attention to. Um, you know, this is a, a war that we really haven't seen the likes of for decades. This is industrialized warfare. It's using up resources, uh, um, immense amounts of resources and very, very quickly, um, uh, like we haven't seen in, in an awful long time. And, um, you know, that creates a lot of uh, additional implications to this, uh, to this conflict that uh, uh, people haven't had to think about for an awful long time. Uh, you mentioned that uh, uh, the early part of my career was at Central Intelligence Agency. And uh, um, yes, I promise I was uh, only an analyst, uh, I was not a spy, uh, but I worked in uh, the, uh, the branch that uh, tracked defense economics um, of the Soviet Union and, uh, and then Russia. So everything related to the nexus between the economy and the military. Now, obviously, War itself uh, is a completely unique phenomenon and, and, and uh, it has uh, big implications for an economy in, in unique ways, uh, in large part because it destroys resources. Um, but even beyond that, just the higher defense spending and defense effort that we're seeing all over the world has big implications. So, um, you know, one thing that I'm really focused on is uh, the resources available to both Russia and Ukraine to continue prosecuting the war. Um, I, I really think that we're getting to the point where on both sides, there are real questions about the resource availability and how that's going to impact uh, what's gonna happen uh, in the coming months and years. Uh, so, um, you know, I think that uh, uh, Russia is, uh, is uh, being weakened, uh, not only militarily, but also in terms of its economy. Um, but then on the U.S. side and, and the side of the, the allies who are supporting Ukraine, it's, uh, it's also getting to the point where we're straining our defense industrial base, and, uh, and that's going to have a lot of implications for uh, our economy going forward as well. Fabulous. Thank you so much, Patrick. Uh, Matt, what would you like to add? What's your take on the situation in Russia right now? Yeah, sure. Well, uh, thank you very much, Alejandra, and, and it's good to be with you, Patrick. Um, so I guess what I would do is just kind of highlight where I think we stand in the war in terms of the uh, overall geopolitical context. And I think the way to understand this is after the Soviet Union collapsed, Russia tried to reformulate. They went through those chaotic years in the 1990s. They had the ruble crisis. And when the United States invaded Iraq after 9-11, the U.S. was kind of bogged down in the Middle East, and that gave a, an opportunity for Russia to try to reclaim some of the losses that they experienced when the Soviets fell. And that's certainly what President Vladimir Putin wanted to do. And Ukraine has always been a really critical buffer space uh, for Russia. Russia has fought many wars over Ukraine. And of course, the Kievan Rus is the origin of Russia. 
Um, and so basically they tried to take advantage of this opportunity where the US was distracted. And, and of course, China was also resurging or really emerging during this period. And both of them saw this opportunity while the US was distracted abroad. But Russia is much more limited than China. Um, and remember that they had never undertaken you know, extensive structural reforms. Uh, they, they did allow their economy to be privatized, which gave rise to the oligarchs, uh, but they didn't have a, a governance system that would kind of enable a sustainable economy and, and a more complex economy and a more technologically advanced economy. They were still kind of a, a resource-cursed uh, petrostate. And that means that then when they started to wage these wars, they waged limited wars, small wars in Georgia in 2008, and then they took Crimea from Ukraine in 2014. Um, and these were calculated events. Their intervention in Syria in 2015 was also very, very small and limited. And it gave, uh, it gave the impression that Russia was capable of concentrating a, a limited amount of force at the appropriate timing in order to maximize their strategic effect. And, and it gave Vladimir Putin this kind of uh, persona as being very, you know, very good at judo, very good at, uh, at doing uh, moves that would, that would uh, amplify his actual limited capabilities. Uh, but 2022 was a bigger invasion, a bigger chunk of Ukraine that the Russians attempted to take. And I think it's revealed those limitations. Um, but we have to be careful in terms of, you know, not just kind of demeaning the Russian capabilities, because they are about to launch a new offensive, and they will probably do better this year than they did last year. Uh, and the reason is because they've started to learn from some of their mistakes, but also they do ultimately have greater uh, manpower and, uh, and munitions than the Ukrainians. And Ukraine, of course, is very dependent on Western support, which eventually can start to fray, uh, particularly if the global economy weakens. Um, and so there's this really interesting dynamic, which is that Russia is about to launch a new offensive. Uh, the Ukrainians, will fight back and, and they of course did very well in their fall campaign. And so they're, they're actually eager in the spring to, to try to launch their own attacks um, and try to retake territory that's been taken from them. And uh, what it's going to do is create a, a kind of decisive um, or, or at least possibly decisive showdown uh, between the two sides. And of course we've seen that the West is gearing up for this by providing Ukraine with better weaponry, which you know, in, in many cases may not be able to be field until the summer or the fall. But the point is, is that this war will continue this year, at least. Um, now, whether Russia will actually be able to do much other than, than, than claim the annexed territories in eastern Ukraine, I think is very questionable. So in other words, what Russia is trying to do is save face. They're trying to conquer the Donbass or, or these parts of eastern Ukraine and solidify the territories that they've annexed and that they currently control. But they're probably not going to be able to invade the rest of Ukraine. We already saw that they pulled out of Kiev. Uh, it would be a stretch for them to reinvade Kharkiv where they were kicked out in November. Um, unlikely that they would reinvade and control Kyrgyzstan, which they got kicked out of uh, in November. Um, and of course, Odessa, which is the major port of Ukraine, is a location that they would maybe attempt to blockade or attack at some point from, from the sea. Um, but that would be really more of a negotiating tactic uh, that I don't think they can, you know, uh, from, from the land, I don't think they can get that far. So 
So what we're talking about is a war in which ultimately, even if Russia is successful, they basically bit off a chunk of, of, of southeast and eastern Ukraine to try to create some buffer around Crimea, which is, uh, which is probably what they really care about. Um, if the Ukrainians do really well and they're kicking them out of that territory, then I think what could become very dangerous would be if Ukraine starts to retake Crimea, because I think the Russians would be hyper aggressive if they thought they were going to lose Crimea. Um, but most likely, uh, what we're looking at is a, is, is a stalemate. And I'll just conclude these, this opening remark here. I, I think there's an interesting dynamic, which is that since Russia is an oil state, uh, they, their revenues are provided by the oil price. And that helps to explain the timing of their attack. The global cycle looks like it, it might be bouncing back. I, I actually tend to think not. I think, in fact, we're going to find out that we still have major economic problems uh, for global growth over the next two years. But uh, certainly what the market believes at the beginning of the year is the, and, and what we saw with the Federal Reserve and the ECB hinting that they might not be hiking rates much further. There's a belief in the marketplace that the cycle is going, the, the bi global business cycle is going to continue for some time. Now, if that's the case, Russia, you know, the oil price will be buoyant and Russia will be able to continue fighting. Now, what's interesting about that is that it also means that the EU and the United States if there's no recession, then they will be able to keep providing support for Ukraine. There won't be a lot of political pressure to cut back on that support. And the support that they're giving Ukraine is more effective, you know, uh, because they have precision guided munitions and, and, and what, you know, American technology. So in other words, it just gets you to this picture in which Russia can keep attacking, but they probably are not going to be able to do much other than, than solidify the annexed territories that they have. And then that will force eventually a stalemate, and then that will force eventually a ceasefire negotiation. Wow, that really good stuff. Thank you, guys. Super insightful. Obviously, a lot of different scenarios can unfold, but it sounds like the end game is a much more weakened Russia. Great. Um, so, Patrick, let's move the conversation over to you. And you've written quite a bit about how the war triggered a bifurcation in the world order. So, you know, it's not discussions, not just about Russia today. We want to talk about the whole world. So can you talk a little bit about that? And a uh, question for you also, do you think this bifurcation would have happened anyway, despite the war? Well, uh, yeah, actually, let me uh, uh, start a little bit more broadly. Um, here at Confluence, we've actually been uh, talking about deglobalization or a, a retreat from globalization for a little over a decade, uh, believe it or not. Uh, you know, we, we feel like for the US in particular, and actually even for virtually all the main developed uh, countries around the world, you know, it was really costly to maintain the US-led hegemonic uh, order that we saw ever since World War II. And the way we look at it is that eventually, especially in the US, voters got tired of the cost of being the global hegemon and um, basically politically um, began to demand a, a pullback from that effort. And that pullback is one thing that, uh, that encouraged uh, miscreants and, and troublemaking uh, uh, countries like Russia to do it. So, um, you know, in a way, deglobalization 
produced uh, the crisis. <coughs> but uh, on top of it, excuse me, on top of that, uh, that process, <clears throat> Russia's invasion itself is also triggered more bifurcation in that as the, uh, as the world had begun to fracture into different camps, uh, the invasion has really uh, accelerated that process. Uh, you know, when we talk about deglobalization, a lot of times we, we've noticed that people perceive that as meaning atomization, where countries are going to break off and, and go you know, each their own direction. It's going to be each country for itself. And we don't actually see it that way. We think it's much more likely that countries are going to coalesce into different camps. Uh, and indeed, that's what we're seeing. So, you know, this is uh, um, uh, really one of the key dynamics of war. For example, Russia, after facing all the sanctions from the West uh, that have been imposed, has gone uh, much more all in in terms of its relationships with China. And so um, the war definitely has accelerated that process. And we think that uh, that's really going to be uh, one of the key global dynamics over the coming decades, this uh, fracturing of the world into primarily a US-led uh, geopolitical and economic camp and a China-led uh, camp. Um, and uh, you know, we really think that has huge implications for the global economy and global politics. Great, thank you. Um, yeah, makes sense. It was already happening and this just accelerated the process. You see the world divided as a China block, a US block. Awesome. Um, well, not awesome at the end, but you know what I mean. <laughs> so Matt, you take a slightly different approach and instead of viewing this as more of a bifurcation of the world order, you see this as more of a multipolar concept. So perhaps multiple blocks. Can you please elaborate and maybe talk about who's in each block? Yeah, happy to do that. And, and just to be clear, though, I, I do have a lot of sympathy with what Patrick said. And I think that the end game, you know, he, I think Patrick may be right. The end game where we end up could be a new bipolar world order uh, in which the different forces are largely arrayed under those two banners of the U.S. and China. So I think that's entirely plausible. And I, I even kind of lean that way. Um, but I'm also very cognizant of the limitations today with the with the ability of the U.S. and China to order those two coalitions. Um, and I guess what I would the way I would say that is that I observe a few things. Uh, so first of all, where we definitely seem to agree is that I think that the big change is the Russo-Chinese strategic partnership. I think that is incredibly important. I still read editorials in the Financial Times and other places that act as if uh, you know, as if really China and Russia don't get along and they're not going to get along. Uh, well, of course, they don't love each other. No nations really like each other. But what, what they find is that the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And so they form marriages of convenience. Um, and that's what international relations is all about. And I think in this case, it's very clear that both Russia and China are threatened by American influence in their neighborhood. And they want to expel or reduce American influence, and they want to expand their own influence and create an, a sphere of influence. And since they both have that shared goal, and it, it really uh, 
it really kind of creates tension uh, most obviously in places like Ukraine and Taiwan, but, but around their entire peripheries. That means that they have a strong relationship. The other thing is that you hear this really backward looking analysis of Russia and China, which says that, well, they won't get along because you know in the 1950s and 60s, they were both communist and they tried to form an alliance and it fell apart. Well, yeah, but China was not an industrialized economy at that time. So nowadays, of course, you have China is an industrialized economy, which means they import a lot of commodities. Well, guess who provides a lot of commodities? Russia. Russia is a capital starved country today. China has a lot of capital. Uh, so China's investing abroad. And that's another uh, kind of economic complementarity that they have. So what I would say is that the economic structure of the two countries has changed and that they are much more complementary today. They both have a shared goal of undermining US leadership in the world and carving their own spheres of influence. And if, if you think about it, what would be the worst case scenario for Russia? Well, obviously, right now, what what Putin doesn't want to have have happen is to be completely humiliated um, and then discredited at home and then overthrown. And, and even those in the Kremlin around Putin are even if they wouldn't mind getting rid of Putin at some level, their fates are tied to Putin at this point. Uh, and so they also don't want that to happen. Well, what about China? Well, it's not good for China. If the Russian regime fails in Ukraine, first of all, it implies that Russia can't, or that China can't do anything about Taiwan because the Western support would be strong for Taiwan as well. And Taiwan's actually a lot harder to invade than Ukraine is. But the other thing is that if, if Russia fails utterly and is discredited, then the chances are much higher that you could have a future change in governance in Russia in which it would try to re-engage with Europe because it would need to out of economic desperation, in which case, Russia would be neutral or maybe even trying to befriend the West. Uh, and China would be the isolated power, which is, this, which is not what China wants. So in other words, there's a strong basis, I think, that, that apparently Patrick and I both share for believing that Russia and China will be a, 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 an expanding strategic partnership. And then that, of course, puts pressure on the United States because it's uh, it's basically a geopolitical nightmare for the U.S. to have these two powers ally. And when that was a threat during the Cold War, the United States fought two wars trying to prevent that from happening. The Korean War and the Viet Vietnamese War were both attempts by the U.S. to prevent communism in the communist bloc from dominating the Eastern Hemisphere. Um, so the U.S. doesn't want that to happen. And that means that the U.S. is going to try to sabotage that relationship. And particularly, the U.S. is going to fight back very hard in Ukraine, as we are providing a lot of support. Um, but also, the U.S. is going to try to increase the deterrence around Taiwan so that China is contained. And the U.S. is going to put pressure on its allies to help. And that means going to Europe and Japan and others and saying that we expect them to help. And in particular, you see examples like the U.S. leaning on the Netherlands and Japan recently to help constrain China's access to semiconductors because the US wants to limit China's military and economic modernization. So then that raises this point, well, then aren't we bifurcating and aren't we going into a bipolar world? And, and I do, like I said, I do think that may very well be the end game. But here's why I'm not quite ready to make that leap yet. Uh, first of all, Europe is not threatened directly by China. So the US has a lot of diplomacy and wheedling and cajoling that we need to do. Um, to get the Europeans really on board, because really from Europe's point of view, they've just cut off, they've just broken their relationship with Russia. Their economy is uh, on the verge of recession. 
they don't want to now apply sweeping sanctions against China and break off all of their business and access to China. So Europe is trying to still engage with China while disengaging from Russia. And it's not going to be as, uh, uh, as uh, aggressive toward China as the US wants it to be. And so that's one key point. Europe is an independent actor. The EU is a very large economy and the US can't simply tell it what to do. And the other actor that I think is relevant here is India. India still has uh, and always has had decent relations with Russia. India is scooping up a lot of this oil that Russia needs to sell on the market. Um, and India is not enthusiastic about kind of uh, wholly throwing itself into the Western camp because it doesn't want to be dominated by the US any more than it wanted to be dominated by British naval power. So, uh, so what we see is that India and Europe are still kind of swing players. And you can throw a few others in, but they're not as important like Brazil. And um, what, the, what that means is that basically, I think the world is still kind of multipolar. And, and, and the way that that changes, and I'll conclude, is if China, if China is belligerent, if China attacks Taiwan, then obviously we're in a bipolar world because Europe will be forced to recognize what the Americans are saying. It'll be forced to, uh, to cut off relations uh, with China the way that it has with Russia. And there'll be a much more intense sanction regime, not only on Russia, but also on China from the democracies. And that will definitely be a, a, a clean rupture um, and a movement into a, a, a truly bipolar world. But I think if China uh, resists that, uh, that aggressive impulse over the next, let's say, five or 10 years, well, then in that case, we're kind of in a world where there's still a lot of jockeying. So bottom line, in-game may be bipolarity, but I think that the, the stance of the world today is, is multipolarity. Makes sense. And that's a really good way to be able to outline all the different scenarios that can unfold. Great. Um, so next question right here, and it's a question that I had already in advance, and then I'll sort of add on to a question that's come in from the audience. Um, so Patrick, I'll direct this one to you. So you, you talked about how globalization was already dying even before uh, Russia's inv invasion of Ukraine. What are your thoughts on industrial policy? This was obviously a manner of operation for China, um, lots of parts of Asia, not so much a developed world thing. Um, are we moving more in that direction? And then to relate it to an audience question, because of this deglobalization, how does this impact just economic modeling in general going forward? I mean, you could argue it's a decline in comparative advantage, could be inflationary. What are your thoughts on that, Patrick? Well, um, well, there's a, a lot in that uh, in that question or set of questions, but uh, um, I guess let me start out, um, and this kind of addresses uh, you know Matt's uh, uh, views. Um, you know, I, I hear a lot of talk about the idea that well, the U.S. won't be able to hold its uh, its camp together, and so you know maybe there's you know, the US and then a European bloc and, and other blocks. Um, but, um, you know, I, I, I think it's important to remember that the US uh, has a lot of experience uh, managing its alliances and blocks. Um, and uh, it's gonna probably continue to use a lot of the tools that it already has. And that will likely uh, keep the block uh, pretty much together. Um, now, 
alliances are always tough. And especially the farther you're away from actual military conflict, I, you know, and, and even when you're in the early stages, you know, if you look back at the, the history of World War II, the, the allies constantly had uh, frictions and, and difficulties uh, uh, coordinating and, and real disagreements where, uh, about where to, to deploy resources, you know, the, the big uh, controversies about where to, uh, what theaters to send the Higgins boats to and whether it made sense to, uh, to start with a, a, uh, an invasion of Northern Africa. I mean, right up to the, you know, spring of uh, 1944, wasn't even entirely sure that the Russians were going to stay on board. Um, so, you know, it, there's always that that conflict. Now, the way that the U.S. has kept its allies um, on board for decades uh, is primarily based on two uh, main policies. First of all, we provide global security. I uh, protecting the sea lanes, uh, protecting uh, countries from aggressors. Uh, we basically have the, the predominant military power uh, that, uh, that is really a public benefit. Security is a, a, a public good uh, that helps keep other countries uh, adhered to us. And then the second thing is we provided the world's reserve currency, the dollar, which we basically did by maintaining our openness to foreign imports and, and capital flows. Um, now, those are very costly, uh, like I mentioned earlier uh, in the talk. And, and so we've, uh, we've become more reluctant to exercise those policies, but nevertheless, they remain um, uh, available to us and, and we, we do uh, use them and, and throw our weight around. Um, you know, when I was at uh, the agency and, and then uh, for a while after the agency, um, I did a lot of work at NATO headquarters uh, in Brussels. And, you know, I can tell you, it, it was palpable, the idea that the U.S. was the dominant military power, but also the dominant military spender. And you know, remember that he who pays the piper calls the tunes. Uh, and so, you know, there were always fractures and frictions. You know, I, I can't tell you how many times I sat in uh, in a, uh, a a meeting at NATO, and all the protocols had to be followed about you know never seating a Greek representative next to a Turk. I uh, you know the the French always insisting on speaking French, even though everyone in the room was perfectly fluent in English. I mean, all, all these things. But nevertheless, you know, at the end of the day, the U.S. provides security and the dollar. And, um, you know, I think that is, uh, is something that's going to still be the case in this fractured world that we're going into. In, in fact, I did a study last year where I took about 200 of the world's uh, economies and tried to predict using objective indicators what camp they're going to end up in. And basically, the US-led camp is going to be today's rich, 
highly advanced, highly industrialized liberal democracies and a few uh, closely related emerging markets. The China-led camp is all emerging markets, mostly commodity exporting uh, countries, countries that are really dependent on commodity exports, and a lot of them being very authoritarian. It's a completely different group of countries. And we think that really uh, in that group, China's predominant power comes from its huge economy. Basically, what that tells us is that the way Beijing is going to manage its camp is primarily through a kind of neo-colonialism. So now on, on the question of industrial policy, first of all, you know, ge uh, geopolitical tensions demand a stronger state. And so as we move into this, uh, this new environment, yes, you're going to see a stronger state in general, more state intervention into the economy, into society. Um, and we think that's actually what we're seeing already when it comes to industrial policy. Um, you know, everything from uh, the Trump and then now the Biden administration's continuance of uh, trade restrictions uh, with China, the way that they've clamped down on uh, technology flows and capital flows uh, into China. And now with these subsidies uh, included in the CHIPS Act or the, uh, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, all that is meant to leverage our uh, technology and, and make the, the state stronger in order to strengthen us against the China block. It, it's been really instructive that you know, as the Europeans respond to this, not only are they kicking and screaming, but uh, in their more calmer moments, they're also saying, well, maybe we should do the same thing. And you're not seeing pushback from the US. Indeed, if anything, you know, it's notable that uh, US Trade Representative Tai has actually basically come out and said, well, yeah, we'd kind of like it if you Europeans would do the same thing. Um, and, uh, and, and subsidize your, your companies as a way to break their reliance on China. So yeah, bottom line is that in this new world that we're going into, uh, the state is stronger, industrial policy um, is stronger. Uh, we're gonna see a lot more of that. It's gonna have some negative implications uh, but it's a, a trend that uh, you know I, I just think is unavoidable, unavoidable at this point. Great, thank you. Thank you so much for your response. Now, before I move on to investment implications and the discussion in that area, I do want to take a question from the audience, which I think will be nice to wrap up this geopolitical section. Um, I'll ask this one to you, Matt, and Patrick, please feel free to chime in if you like to. But Matt, you, you outlined all these different scenarios, and one of our audience members asks, everyone talks about supporting Ukraine, she can win the war, but what happens if Ukraine loses the war? What will be the reality we would live in? And will relations actually be more damaging because we sent so much aid now? So you seem to be the the scenario king. So so let's let's hear your thoughts on this. Okay. Well, thanks. Um, you know, I 
I think the way this works is that if the West provides enough support for Ukraine, um, that they expel Russia, um, Russia's going to be humiliated. And I think that Vladimir Putin, if we look at his objectives, you know, like he wanted to stop NATO enlargement, he wanted to neutralize Ukraine, he wanted to use his energy leverage over Europe, um, and he wanted to align Russia with China. Well, NATO is definitely going to be expanding, you know, uh, after the Turkish election, uh, it's pretty likely that eventually Turkey will accede to allowing Sweden and Finland to join NATO. Um, Finland is likely to join. So that's an 800 mile border with, with Russia, right? So Putin has been repudiated. He cut off the natural gas to Europe. That was his supposedly his trump card. It didn't really take long for them to bring new regasification capability and, and, and you know, ship in more liquefied natural gas from the rest of the world, um, including the US. Um, so the Europeans responded quickly there. Now they, they still have an, I, this is still a transition, but the bottom line is that we can already see that ultimately Europe will be able to make this transition, even if there's some bumps um, next winter, you know, depending on the weather. So basically uh, that didn't really work for Putin. And then of course, if he wins in Ukraine, which is the scenario we're talking about, it, again, that, that win is basically a Pyrrhic victory because he ends up with the Donbass. Um, it's not, it's not a really um, glorious conquest. It's actually just kind of what he was capable of doing. Um, and it reflects that there's a lot of domestic instability in Russia that, that the regime was trying to kind of project outward in order to stay in power. And that'll come back to haunt them because the potential GDP growth rate of Russia was 0% before the war. And now when they're you know, isolated from the West. They, do, they don't get Western capital and technology as easily, um, you know, and, and they're shut out from those markets. They're, they're going to struggle to maintain productivity. And of course, the, you know, the population is shrinking. So it's, it's a very bleak environment. And you can extend that to the rest of Vladimir Putin's sphere. We, we have unstable regimes, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Turkmenistan, these are all regimes that basically have a strong man who's old and who's in charge of a kind of corrupt, uh, uh, you know, authoritarian regime. Um, and that means, and we've already seen instability in several of these places. And in fact, the Belarusian instability in 2020 was one of the factors that started to cause Putin and his and the Kremlin to panic. Um, so what I'm saying is that the entire Russian sphere is going to be unstable for many decades. And that's going to involve large scale social unrest at home. It could involve changing, you know, administrations or even regimes. Um, and, and, and that's true even if Ukraine is, is a victory, you know, even if Putin kind of pulls off the Donbass and, and, and is reelected legitimately in March of 2024, that's all short term stuff. The long term is that Russia has a, a destitute economy and a very bleak future. Um, and that instability will then need to be filled, that vacuum will need to be filled. And that's where I think China is very likely to step in. And of course, China, even though Russia would be subordinate in that relationship this time around, it's not like China can simply dominate Russia. Russia still has nuclear weapons and they still will have extensive influence in Central Asia, which is one of the reasons why China needs to get along with them. And so it's really more of a partnership. But, but what I'm saying is that means that Europe will never be able to rest easy even if they achieve a victory, they're still going to have an unstable and aggressive neighbor in Russia that could 
ultimately resort to, to aggression again. And, and particularly if they pull off the Donbass, then they'll, they'll be more likely at some future date to, to reinitiate aggression when, they've, when they think that they've rebuilt their military. Um, and also, if, if we do see this alliance between Russia and China, which I expect, then of course, Europe eventually will start to be more concerned about that because it will buttress Russia and prolong that security threat that they face. So, um, so you know, I, I think that's just the way that the world is trending and it's going to be very hard to imagine a situation um, in which Russia, you know, comes out uh, in flying colors. Uh, and, and, and if they did, you know, then, then I guess you could say, well, in fact, the world is still stable because they took a chunk out of Ukraine, but the West generally imposed a very large cost and now the world order is back the way that it was. Uh, but I, I disagree with that. I think it was a major change. And I think that the evidence will be the Russian-Chinese relationship, which will keep strengthening. Um, and so then the West, you know, if you look at it from the point of view of the West, I don't think they'll regret that they provided Ukraine with so much support because they needed to try, the U.S. wanted to drain Russia of its capabilities and um, and also send a warning signal to China that it's going to be very unpleasant if it tries to attack Taiwan. And the U.S. so far has been achieving that objective. Um, and, and basically, uh, you know, what basically what Putin realized is that if, if Ukraine was prosperous and, and powerful and able to join the EU or NATO, then he would he would be further boxed in. Uh, he believed he needed to instigate the conflict now because it would prevent that from happening. I think that's probably the case. You know, it'll be hard to admit Ukraine to NATO if there's a, you know, just a shaky ceasefire, it could, it could descend into war at any time. In the U.S. and in particular Europe, they're not going to want to be dragged into a direct war with Russia over Ukraine. Um, so bottom line, you know, victory in this case uh, for the West is, um, is simply, you know, preventing Russia from obtaining its objectives. And largely that will be, that will be done. And the problem with it is that we're going to have an unstable Russian sphere. And the problem with that is that it leads to that, that Russo-Chinese block. They depend on each other more heavily. And so then the next chapter really isn't so great for the West uh, because then, you know, we have this geopolitical behemoth that needs to be contained. And it's very difficult to contain a Russo-Chinese relationship that will have influence across Central Asia because you're getting closer to what would be the union of the Eurasian landmass, which would just, it's just too large to contain. It's very difficult. So um, so in conclusion, it's its not a good world order that we're going into, you know, and um, and will the, and then the final point there is, so will the Europeans recognize this? And then, yeah, I mean, ultimately they have to cleave to the United States uh, when their security is threatened. Uh, but that's, that's down the road uh, when they actually you know, when they're actually confronted with outright Chinese aggression or when they're confronted with an additional uh, act of, of Russian aggression. Great, thank you. Um, and you actually answered a, a question that came in along the way. So that's, that, that's perfect. Um, okay, I lied. I want one more geopolitical question before we move on to investment implications. So, you know, you, you've talked about these strong men. We have Putin, we have Xi Jinping. How does this change if they're no longer around? Does that change the scenario? Because as you said, they're older. 
what could potentially happen going forward? What are the different scenarios there? I'm happy to answer that. Patrick, you want to go first? Or... Uh, yeah, I'll take a, a quick stab at it, I guess. Um, you know, for, um, for Russia, uh, my view is that uh, the likelihood that, uh, that a Putin would be replaced with a pro-Western democratic reformist is pretty low uh, right now. There's, uh, boy, there, there's just no one that really uh, seems to, to fill those shoes right now. Even uh, uh, Alexei Navalny um, isn't that attractive uh, in, in a lot of ways and, and uh, certainly doesn't have a, a huge amount of support in Russia. So, you know, if uh, if Putin uh, ends up being forced out of power because of the uh, the war in Ukraine, which is, uh, you know, a decent possibility, I think it's more likely that he's going to get replaced by someone uh, at least as bad as, as he I think there's probably chance that if Xi Jinping is uh, um, removed from power, either you know he dies in office or um, simply decides to retire at some point, um, there's probably greater chance that uh, that someone in the Chinese political sphere uh, could replace him who would be more um more likely to try to make friends again uh with the west certainly a lot of uh of chinese uh political leaders understand that she uh probably um made some mistakes geopolitically and, and created a lot of pushback that didn't have to be there um but um that's probably pretty far down the road uh, as of right now it doesn't look like she has uh has uh, any significant uh, political um, threats that he has to uh, deal with, and it looks like he's vigor vigorous enough to uh, to stay in power for uh, for quite a while. And quickly on my part, um, you know, I think so. One thing is, if if you're trying to like on the in the Russia Ukraine context, if you're trying to create a peace treaty, which I don't think is going to happen what you need is for Russia to give the territory back, including Crimea. And I, I don't think they'll do that. So, you know, that's independent of, independently of Putin, uh, because it's very hard for Russia to give back territory that Russians believe is their own and that they just killed, you know, thousands of boys to take. You know, it's not going, there's no leader who's going to be able to come in, even if they did pick a, a, a kind of liberal or economic technocrat who's a reformer and who's good at whining and dining in Brussels, this guy is going to come in and basically um, make the military very suspicious because the military is going to say, what, are you going to trade away all of our hard fought gains uh, simply to win the approval of some, you know, diplomats in Europe? No. And so so Russia won't be able to give up the territory, which means a peace treaty is very difficult. It means it's very hard for Europe to restore, you know, natural gas uh, and oil imports. And it's very hard for Europe to... Um, you know, to, to try to re relieve sanctions otherwise. And we end up with a sort of, um, you know, just an, a, a more hardened uh, and, and distant relationship, uh, which is very clear already. And then on the China side, uh, I, I think, uh, you know, again, I definitely agree that Xi Jinping is very well ensconced today. 
but, you know, he could die. I mean, people die, you know, that happens. I think the thing that's interesting is that the Communist Party needed Xi Jinping. They needed to revive Maoism. Um, they were moving toward re-centralization uh, around the time that he took power. So, so I think in the media, it's kind of portrayed that Xi Jinping is a mastermind who conducted a power grab. I think that's half the truth. The other half is that the Communist Party was losing legitimacy because economic growth was slowing and the economic model was changing after the Great Recession. And they needed to kind of reconsolidate the regime. They didn't want a Soviet-style collapse. So they brought Xi Jinping and they, uh, they, gave, they, they, gave, they gave him the ability to do what he wanted to do, which was to restore Maoist-style autocratic rule. Uh, but if he dies uh, or you know, is otherwise replaced, the person will inherit that same autocratic structure. You know, so for example, he removed term limits. Well, it's not very likely that the new guy is going to reimpose term limits. And if he did, think about this, because remember, that's the whole problem with China's governance, is that Deng Xiaoping came in 1979, and he started to try to institutionalize some of the political systems. He was the one that tried to impose a certain like 10-year succession for the leader. But he himself was not kept to the 10-year succession. And so in other words, you just have one guy who might, he tries to kind of put in a norm, but that norm can easily be broken by the next guy. That's the whole problem with the lack of constitutional rule is that it really just depends on whether the guy arbitrarily steps down or not, and then whether his successors uphold that norm or not. Um, and so basically the next you know, whoever replaces Xi Jinping, he's going to inherit a system that's heavily centralized where the Communist Party controls the state and the military. He's going to have control of the Communist Party. And here's the thing, even if the Politburo, you know, the, the ruling committee, if they try to take, claw back some of that power that Xi Jinping took and make it more of a consensus style rule again, even if they do that, remember what China is facing. China is facing a change of the economic model that they have no clear path out of, which is you know, debt deleveraging stemming from the property sector and the misallocation of, of credit and the, the, the huge increase in debt in, over the past 10 year, 20 years. Um, they don't really have an answer to that. No other East Asian economy has figured out the answer to that. Their population is shrinking. No East Asian country has figured out through any kind of fertility policies how to revive fertility. Hasn't worked. So demographic decline, debt deleveraging. And then here's a very key one. Remember that Xi Jinping, by removing Hong Kong's liberties, he, he erased the option of a one country, two systems. Well, obviously the Taiwanese people, a lot of them didn't want one country, two systems anyway, but they now know for sure that they don't want it because they know that it can be unilaterally taken from them overnight. So that means that Taiwan is permanently that they had already been moving to have their own kind of identity. They didn't want to be controlled by Beijing, but now they're even less likely to embrace some kind of accommodation over the long run. So the next Chinese leader is going to be someone in charge of a highly centralized autocratic state with a failing economy and a, and a very dangerous national security threat in the form of an American allied island province. And that's the same situation Xi Jinping's in. So it doesn't create the conditions for China and the US to re-engage. Final point, the United States would have to be the partner to any re-engagement. Let's say Xi Jinping dies, new guy wants to re-engage. Well, guess what? America won't. 
And the reason why the US won't re-engage is because to re-engage would be to strengthen the Chinese economy, which remember, will be allied with the Russian. And so therefore the US would be feeding this behemoth, which is the greatest threat to US long-term uh, pre preponderance in, in the world system. So basically the US can't re-engage even if a, 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 a liberal uh, preposterously somehow comes into power in China. So it, it won't happen. So what I've hoped to convey is that Russia and China are being driven by geopolitical factors. The individuals are maybe a little bit more than figureheads. Clearly Putin and Xi Jinping do have discretion and they do have command. Um, but I think it'll be a, uh, a very disappointing moment for the West if one of or both of these leaders are replaced and, um, and the news media in, enables people to kind of believe that it's going to bring a spring uh, of, of re-engagement and liberalism to that sphere. I, I don't think it'll happen. Thank you so much. This has been such an amazing discussion. And um, we have about five minutes left. Um, and I wanna give you guys the opportunity to talk about some investment implications of all of this stuff. Um, so I'll just have you guys go back and forth, um, you know, you whatever inv investment implication, whether you wanna talk about, I'd love to hear a little more about commodities. Patrick, you had brought that up a little bit. You'd also brought up the dollar. Um, so Patrick, let's start with you first and then we'll wrap it up with Matt. Great, well, um, you know, in uh, response to uh, the analysis that I laid out, the, there's really two main themes that, uh, that we're talking a lot about these days. Um, first of all, um, related to commodities, um, you know, as I mentioned, the, um, the administration, the US administration and, and now the West in general have really clamped down on trade and technology flows with China and its block. Um, and that makes a lot of sense because, uh, believe it or not, the Chinese block is highly dependent on being able to export to the U.S. block uh, and to uh, to utilize and, and get technology from the block. So um, it makes all the sense in the world. But you have to ask yourself, you know, is China and its block going to just roll over and play dead? Are they just going to accept that? Um, and we don't think so. Uh, Earlier, I mentioned that in my study, trying to estimate where countries end up in terms of which block they end up in, um, you know, I, I mentioned that China's block is mostly made up of commodity producers. Now, you know, there's commodities and then there's commodities. There's all kinds of commodities that are really, uh, especially when it comes to mineral resources, are, are really widely dispersed throughout the Earth's crust. And so, you know, there's a lot in the U.S. block, there's a lot in China, et cetera. So iron ore is a good example of that. Uh, that's, that's secure. But there are a lot of, uh, especially mineral commodities that are heavily concentrated in the China block. And because of that, we think that uh, one of China's main ways of retaliating against the U.S. block for the trade and technology clampdown is to weaponize commodities. So cobalt, rare earths, uh, any number of, uh, of really important strategic minerals uh, we think now are susceptible to uh, a clampdown from China and the rest of its block. And indeed, that's what you saw 
in the Russia-Ukraine war when Russia cut off Western Europe from natural gas exports. We think that in, in this coming period of high geopolitical tensions, um, we're going to see more and more of that. And so we think it's going to be uh, a pretty good time to have exposure to especially mineral uh, commodities and um, and, and commodity producers. The other thing is that, uh, probably no surprise, uh, in a world of rising geopolitical tensions uh, where everyone has seen what Russia has done and, and they understand uh, increasingly what the military threat is from China, defense industry uh, is likely to be in a prolonged period of growth. We're, we're expecting uh, much higher defense spending, uh, a, a real effort to rebuild defense capability and defense industry going forward. Um, now, some people tend to think that's bad for an economy. Uh, let me tell you, that was uh, one of the main focuses uh, of my group at CIA. Decades ago, uh, we did a lot of analysis that basically shows that high defense spending actually correlates with faster economic growth not necessarily a causality there, it could go the other way, but um, until you see defense burdens getting over about 10% of GDP, uh, higher defense spending can actually be good for an economy. And so we think that's gonna be part of the whole reindustrialization process in the US block. Yeah, qu quickly, I, I would just chime in. First of all, definitely agree about defense. I mean, that I think that's good that we can uh, have a note of uh, of agreement um, on that point because I, th I think it's very clearly following from the great power competition that we're talking about today. Um, in terms of globalization, you know, I, I this is a, a multi millennial process, so I think globalization continues. But I I do think that what we're witnessing is it is the kind of exit of some key states, you know, Russia breaking off with Europe, and then we're going to have the U.S. Um, uh, in increasingly penalizing China and China withdrawing, uh, pursuing import substitution. So that Russo-Chinese bloc is going to be breaking away, and that's going to reduce the overall effectiveness of globalization. So I call it hypo-globalization. And what it implies is that you're, you're going to have these uh, third parties like India, Southeast Asia, Latin America, those will be the beneficiaries. Those will be the emerging markets that can attract investment from both the West and the East. Um, so I think those are the emerging markets to look at. And then in terms of inflation, you know, if we, if, if we focus, I mean, there's multiple things that can be said about this. Generally speaking, if you take the highly efficient Chinese supply chain and you redistribute it across the 17,000 islands of the Indonesian archipelago, you're going to end up with a less efficient system and, and higher goods costs and, and, and higher inflation. But of course, the EMs will also devalue their currencies from time to time in order to preserve competitiveness. So I, I think that the way to really approach this is to say, look at the United States. The U.S. is going to be uh, spending more on defense and we can't raise taxes because we're gridlocked. Um, that's at least still the case in the 2020s. I think ultimately that'll be broken and we will have to start to raise taxes, um, you know, after some kind of debt crisis. Uh, Europe, Europe's going to be investing huge amounts into defense and energy security. Uh, so what happens is all these countries are compelled both by domestic populism and geopolitical competition to invest huge fiscal resources. And that's ultimately aimed at security 
it's going to cause larger deficits and it's going to push up their you know real neutral rate of interest and so it, it does imply more, uh, it, it implies fewer savings, it implies higher inflation, it implies higher rates of interest. And, um, and it's gonna be a very big transition. And it's a transition that, that favors those industries that we're talking about today that are, that are favored by government, but not just that they're favored by government from a subsidization point of view, uh, but that they stand to benefit uh, because they, they, they provide cash revenues during a time in which uh, there's higher inflation. So, you know, cyclicals and industrials, materials, uh, energy, these are the sectors that have performed well so far in this cycle. And this cycle, you, you know, we can take a step back if there's a recession, but this cycle that we've seen so far since 2020 is evidence of what's likely to come because of this entrance of the government back into the economy in the developed markets. Great, thank you. So commodity super cycle, <laughs> uh, defense, that definitely different world than what we've been used to. I, unfortunately, we are out of time. I wish we could, at least for me, I wish we could do this for hours, but I do want to thank all of you for joining us today. And I really want to thank Matt and Patrick for such an excellent discussion. I am just honored to have just been even a moderator for you guys. This was fantastic.